Hello and welcome to We Came From The 80s, the podcast where we talk about movies we thought were cool. I'm your host, Farron, and I'm here once again with Heather. Hello. And this time we're here to talk about a movie about a homeless boy who discovers that lusting after a rich kid can in fact lead to the end of the world. Of course, we're talking about Legend, which premiered on the 18th of April, 1986. It was directed by Ridley Scott. He has his ups, he has his downs, and this one is debatable. I liked it, but a lot of people really didn't. Uh, it was written by William Hjortsberg. It's a Nordic spelled name, so I'm sorry, William. And starring Tom Cruise, Mia Sarah, and Tim Curry. Music by Tangerine Dream, at least in this version of it. In the European release, it was, I think, Jerry Goldsmith, he did a proper score. So you mentioned you'd seen this, but you didn't quite remember it. I, I think I f figured it out. So one of those ones that I, you know, on Sunday afternoon when you're f flipping around on TV. Oh yeah, you caught it then? It's like, yeah, I've seen like chunks of it and never stuck with it enough to actually get in. Fair enough. Yeah. I saw this probably on Super Channel, uh, you know, the local pay TV channel here in Calgary. I don't know what they had at Edmonton. I never saw it in the theaters, that's for sure. It's nothing my parents would ever have taken me to. Their theory was if they weren't interested, why would they take me? So, oh well. But I did see Raiders of the Lost Ark twice in theaters, but not this one. Uh, so I probably saw it on Super Channel, and I've seen it a lot. I've only ever seen the director's cut once, and that's when the DVD came out. It was about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. This version, the U.S. theatrical cut, is what I'm used to, and, and I love it. You know, when I first saw it, I was never into, sci uh, to, into fantasy. I've never been into fantasy. I mean, I love Lord of the Rings. I know a lot about this, you know, a lot about it. I've read the Silmarillion and all that sort of stuff. But I never liked fantasy because I always had this, I used to say in junior high, I refuse to read a book where the protagonist can spontaneously sprout wings and fly off. I didn't like the logic of it. And I still am very much that way. But for whatever reason, I really like this movie. I like the, the mythology of it. And I always did. It always sort of stuck with me. Actually, what it was was darkness. Yeah, that's what you want to hear. As a kid, I like darkness. <laughs> yeah, that's but Tim Curry rock, But Tim Curry rocks. Well, yeah. That makeup job, how that didn't sweep Academy, the Academy Awards in terms of makeup, that I'll never know. But the makeup of darkness, the guy with that that chin and those fangs and those kick-ass horns and the costuming. I mean, it's it's an impressive, impressive you know visual, and I think that's what caught me is how gorgeous darkness looked for all of his evilness he's the coolest looking evil whatever i've ever seen in my life and tim curry i think i don't think anyone else could do that that's 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 tim curry man i mean that's you i mean you've seen him you know, uh what else has he done rocky horror picture show he was dr frankenfurter he played uh wadsworth in clue one of my favorite films uh he played uh, the evil, or the not so much the evil scientist, the idiot scientist in the shadow, which is a little after our time. We won't be reviewing that one. So the Alec Baldwin movie. Oh, jeez. Yeah, he played the doctor aboard the sub in Hunt for Red October. He's done a lot of good stuff, and in this one, they just told him, "See that sooner? That see that scenery over there, Tim? Go and chew on that, would you? Because that's what it is. He just chews on everything." Yeah. Uh, so now that you've seen it, you've seen it, you know, front to back. What do you think of it? What was, what what you know what sort of sticks with you? It, it it took me a bit to get into it. Uh, was well like like you said in in the eighties the the fantasy movies were bad. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the word. Um, I've I've always enjoyed fantasy. Not reading. I like the stories. I like mm. the worlds. I don't mind if the hero 
grows wings, as okay. long as it's consistent to the world. But I could never quite deal with the 80s fantasy movies. Like the Conans and all that sort of right, stuff. Right, because they were so just... Like, you, you take this amazing story in my head and put it in 80s effects, and I'm yeah. like, ugh. Yeah. I'm out. Um, <laughs> yeah. But what about this time, now that you've seen it? But now it? I gave it a chance, and it just... It's it's not so much it's hard it's hard to it's hard to describe it's like you said the visuals and the sound go a long way to create the the world that this adventure is yeah. happening in yeah. I mean it's pretty standard light versus dark dark wants to win light says no yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> you hope light says no yeah go ahead I'm I'm having a day off <laughs> yeah but yeah it's uh, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. For me, what sticks out is the sound and the music, and it, and it was it was so then. Although again, also the costuming, especially with darkness. Not that most of the other characters have much costume at all. Uh, the little elf has enough to keep the movie PG, but that's about it. <laughs> it's it's the sound, the music. Like I said, in the in the European version, which now is just called the director's cut, they had what we you know sort of a traditional fantasy music score because I guess the the audiences in Europe just didn't go for the synthetic Tangerine Dream '80s thing. But I think it works here because it's very, um, it's very fantastic. You know yeah, what I mean? like it, it helped with the surrealism. Yeah, and the sound design, like the fact that uh, uh, the unicorns they used whale song. seduce Lily they use whale song to attract her to draw her in because she wants to see the unicorns again you know or the you know the one surviving unicorn and that really struck me mm-hmm. and I have the soundtrack I love it they have a song at the end of it like you heard that there's, there's music and it's better than rock until you drop or the monster squad rap but okay anything that, that doesn't that. take yeah. much fingers yeah. on a chalkboard are better than that but that song, you know, it's mostly inoffensive. It's sort of like Storybook Story from Princess Bride. It's just sort of, it's there, I can live with it. But the instrument, the instrumentals were, to me, what what really got me, what really drew me in. So it's an interesting film. I mean, it sort of sets itself up. They have a crawl at the beginning, you know, explaining light versus dark. And I thought it was a little overwrought. Like that whole last paragraph of there must be balance like okay we, we get it you know uh, yeah. light for you could have just said light light versus dark you could have literally just had three words on that screen and we would have gotten it and in fact if you take the crawl away altogether i don't think you lose anything no it's very clear what jack is it's very clear what lily is it's pretty damn clear what darkness is well the, the horns do sort of give it they away sort of, yeah yeah well that's the interesting thing though is that he's not the devil he talks about mother Night. Fold your dark arms about me. He has parents. Something bore him. He reminds me a little bit of Hellboy, honestly. Uh, kind of. Well, just, the, just the, the, the way visuals. the horns were and the red and the... Yeah, yeah. I happen to think he's much cooler than Hellboy, but, you know, don't, well, don't get me wrong. Good he movie. Doesn't, he, well, doesn't, he doesn't well, grind his horns off. This is true. You know, I mean, Ron Perlman's hard to beat, but Tim Curry hasn't beat. Tim Curry. Um, Tim Curry is awesome. Yeah. And so, you know, we're introduced to Lily, who 
is clearly some sort of noble-born lady that's pointed out when she visits this sort of peasant family, which has a pretty nice-looking shack for a bunch of peasants. Windows, you know, obviously this is fantasy, so it's not about the socioeconomics of the medieval world. I have a degree in medieval, ancient and medieval history. I could probably look at that and say what works and what doesn't, but this isn't that. This is, this is fantasy. And, you know, the, the table of plentiful food, they live in a bounty. Everything about their life seems quite idyllic. And Lily is noble-born, and they, you know, the, this mother in this place is trying to encourage her. Now, I've no time to stay for a visit today. Oh, you got a sweetheart waiting? No. Now the country proverb, nor king's command, could keep me from the woods today. Lily, I look on you as a daughter. If you'll pardon my saying it, it's time you started behaving like the lady you are. Not visiting poor folk like us. This place holds more magic for me than any palace in the world. But Lily is meant to be innocent. Like she, I have no idea how young or how old Mia Sarah was when this was filmed, but I'd be shocked if it was over about 20. Yeah, they, they were all really young. Yeah, like this is, I mean, she's not meant to be like 13, but she's clearly presented as this young innocent, virginal, all that sort of, like, she's this pure of heart girl. And she's attracted to Jack, who is a boy of the forest. And the neat thing about that is, I had asked you before the podcast, have you heard, you know, the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I first learned in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called Darmok, where, he, where Picard tells the story of, Gil, of the king, the great king Gilgamesh, and his friend Enkidu of the forest. This is a story, a very ancient one, from Earth. And, um, I'll try and remember it. Gilgamesh, a king. Gilgamesh, a king. At Uruk. He tormented his subjects. He made them angry. They cried out aloud. Send us a companion for our king. Spare us from his madness. Enkidu, a wild man from the forest, entered the city. They fought in the temple. They fought in the streets. Gilgamesh defeated Enkidu. They became great friends. Gilgamesh and Enkidu at Uruk. At Uruk. The, the new friends went out into the desert together, where the great bull of heaven was killing men by the hundreds. And Kidu caught the bull by the tail. Gilgamesh struck him with his sword. <laughs> Gilgamesh. <laughs> they were victorious. But Enkidu fell to the ground struck down by the gods and Gilgamesh wept bitter tears saying 
he who was my companion through adventure and hardship is gone forever. This is a like a four or five thousand year old story that comes from Persia, like modern day Iran. And Jack is Enkidu, a person of the forest. Like when they talk about Enkidu, he they say he could run with the deer and he could fly with the birds because he was innocent. So nature accepted him. But they decided that Gilgamesh needed a, a friend, but he couldn't be friends with someone of the forest, so they sent a actually a <laughs> a whore out to sleep with him for seven days and seven nights, after which he could no longer fly with the birds and run with the deer. Okay, seven days of sex, you probably couldn't walk. Yeah, but, you're, you're, yeah. Not, you're not running but, anywhere. But the idea yeah. wasn't that he was exhausted, it's that he was no longer innocent. Yeah. And so he could enter the city, and he could meet with Gilgamesh, and they fought, and, and he defeated Enkidu, but they became good friends. This is Jack, sort of this innocent who, you know, the birds flock to him, and he, we see him, and he's petting a, a fox who must have been pretty heavily sedated by the animal handler. <laughs> Um, same with the birds and you know she can touch the birds and they will land on her when she is with him not because not because she's pure of heart she's still human he is too but she he is a boy of the forest and he has no idea like he's just as innocent as her it doesn't occur to him that letting a mortal touch a unicorn is a bad thing it's all about love and you get the impression there's no lust here despite the fact that we see them kissing there's no hint that the dress is coming off. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. No, it's very, very innocent. It's childlike innocence, yeah. and that's hard to portray in a actors of that age. Let's be honest, and also in that era, when you know, like we've joked, the '80s films, as my friend called them, Hooters films. They're all in a lot of raunchy comedies. Like if you look at, you know, a Police Academy or whatever, they're all very sexual, because you know the the standards within film it's sort of lessened somewhat. But this is almost this pure fairy tale but unlike princess bride which we did earlier today this is not for kids i would suggest no um yes she's pure of heart and innocent and so is he but there's there like this is a scary film because he's actually the first character we see is blix this i don't know what he is a goblin the guy with the, the archer yeah, with the, the long the nose goblin, he's yeah. a goblin yeah and you know before even we see lily or jack he returns to the great tree which is interesting because in most mythologies and religions and even in most modern fictional fantasy any term of a, any time you talk about a great tree it's usually something for good in lord of the in, in tolkien's world the tree gives light the tree actually comes before the sun it's what gave light remember the end of return of the king they plant a seed out of a tree in whatever the name of that big yeah. city is yeah it's from the great tree in the far west which gave off light, which the first Dark Lord destroyed, blah, blah, blah. But it's a good thing. And, of course, Idrisil in Viking mythology is the tree of life. It's, it's a positive. Here, the tree is this black monster. It's, it's been corrupted. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if it's corrupt. I'm not sure if it was ever good. Did it good. start black? I don't know. But, I mean, if you look at it, they've built right onto it, and it's surrounded by swamp and rot and terrible creatures. And at some point, someone says that this is, you know, in the days... Before the sun, this is where evil. This is where the evil came to sacrifice. Oh, that's right. The great tree. When evil anarchy ruled the land, the wicked came here to sacrifice. Yeah. So I'm thinking this was probably never a good tree. So it was born rotten, so to speak. Right. You know, and inside of it, darkness is sitting there, and it's cool because the first time we see him, we don't get to see his true self. He's in black light. Yeah. 
And the eyes glow this kick-ass green along with his ridiculously long fingernails. And his skin is blue. We don't realize he's actually red. Yeah. He's the devil. Let's just, he's devil red. Let's put it that way. He's devil red with black horns. We don't see that till much later, till he reveals himself to Lily. But at that time, he's sort of in a funk. He's in his blue stage. Aw. Yeah. You know, he's sad. And he's pissed off because he misses darkness. Because he has a problem with, I guess, light bulbs or something. And he realizes that... I'm not, he never, they never say how he knows, but he seems to know that the unicorns, who are the sort of the embodiment of light, they are what another mythology would be, the tree, the embodiment of all that is good. And he knows they're about to make an appearance, and he knows he has a, a shot at them, literally. And he sends Blick, Blix, is that his name? Uh, yeah, the goblin, right, yeah. yeah, he sends Blix after him. And of course, we know that what's happening is Jack has been promising to show Lily the unicorns for a while. He doesn't, I don't think he's actually told her what he's going to show her, just something special that she wants to see. Jack, tell me our future. Not today. Why not? Because... There's something really special that I've been promising to show you. Always go now. Because I'll only be here for a short while. And he shows her the unicorn and Blix and some p- crazy-ass pig creature and a guy in armor who turns out to be, I guess, a dwarf, a fairy, a good guy who's been, I guess, corrupted by the dark corrupted, side. Yeah. Uh, they, they track Jack and Lily to wherever these unicorns are. And that's where I think the sound comes in. That's where I was so impressed because they use, like I said, the, uh, the whale sound. And the music changes. It's very like it's all. I mean, it's all synthetic, but it's sort of this wind, because it's got its own theme, and it's very slow. And you only ever see the unicorns in like uh, slow motion. Like it's very, the sound and the visuals are the, very. The different. light is all soft on the edges. Yeah, yeah, it's v- very different than anywhere else. You see, I mean, you know, I joked at the end of the film that you know when they rented those big heavy fans, they certainly got their money's worth because there's always something blown in the air, pollen or. Uh, cherry blossoms or something, how these guys didn't all wind up with, with horrific lungs, lung infections, I don't know. But there's always something in the air, uh, and even with the unicorns, but everything seems to sort of chill out when the unicorns appear. Yeah. Right up until Lily touches it. And the funny thing is everyone assumes right up until the end that it's her fault. But it's not. Blix hits it with a poison-tipped dart. No, he just took his, took his opportunity. Yeah, though I wonder if perhaps it wouldn't have happened had she not touched him and made him vulnerable. Maybe it would have bounced off the unicorn or he would have missed. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Because the only time the, the unicorn ever sits still is when it goes over to Lily and allows her to touch him. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, But in any case, Blix hits the unicorn. The unicorns freak, and it's a terrifying sound for them. It's like this terrible whinny that I'm sure they manipulated sound-wise. Oh, yeah. I don't think horses actually make that sound unless you're hacking off limbs. I, I don't think there was one natural sound in that whole movie. All the sounds were distorted. Yeah, fair enough. But, but that's okay because it's, it's a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale through squinted eyes, yeah. I would suggest. Like you're not, you know, the, the one thing about Princess Bride is that the language is very not fairy tale, even though it's a fairy tale. Here, everything is, like you say, altered. It's everything is artificial you're not meant to think anything here is real and so you know off go the unicorns and the interesting thing is is that at first jack doesn't realize there's that much of a problem other than clearly she's scared because i don't think he knows 
that there was a dart? It was lovely. Like a dream. What you did is forbidden. Who says so? It is known, Lily. These are sacred animals. You risk your immortal soul. I only wanted to touch one. Where's the humming bat? And so, you know, she apologizes and then I guess to distract Jack from clearly screwing up, she pulls off that ring <laughs> and right out of a you know, every medieval fantasy, you know. Don't you wish this was our wedding ring? It's my right to set a challenge for my suitors. I will marry whoever finds this ring. Throws it off that really cool looking cliff. Yeah. And even that, like the sets are gorgeous. Like none of this is real. None of this was filmed in the forest. It was all built on stage. Oh yeah, no. And there's like it's sort of this gorgeous sweeping rise, and it's like a, it's it's um, it's like the it's like that rock they crown the the king on from Lion King, except it's softer and full of uh, yeah, mossy, mossy. And there's a there's this lake at the bottom that now the ring is in, and he dives off, and it's like the minute he does that, everything goes to shit. Yeah. The snow starts. He comes up for air. He haven't, has not found the ring, and he smacks into the ice. Because yeah. in moments, you've got you know an inch of ice. Full on winter. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Because you know the, the because it's at that point that he dives that Blix catches up with with the drugged unicorn and takes its horn. And that's where that, that's actually what causes the long winter. That the yeah. unicorn and the other unicorn, I think, I think he sort of hadn't hadn't found its mate yet. It sort of run off no, in its I, own direction. Yeah, and. Of course, Lily at this point is disoriented. She loses track of Jack because he's disappeared under the water. She panics and runs back to that peasant house where everyone is frozen. That's interesting. They're not covered in ice. They're simply not moving. Though everything else is covered in ice and snow or, you know, cheap, cheap foam coming out of a, you know, whatever. But it's, it, it's, it's, it's fantasy snow and that's fine. You know, and, that, and it's interesting because now we actually get to learn about these three bad guys. These, you know, the goblins and whatever. And they just get a kick out of this shit. Yeah, you know they have to return the, the uh, the horn, to uh, darkness. Uh, but they want to have some fun with it first, and so they start zapping things and, you know, setting fire to things and just messing with the house for no other reason than it's fun. And this is where Lily realizes, you know, something's very wrong. Yeah. In the meantime, Jack, he some I forget how it was he breaks through the ice. That's uh, what how it is he manages kicked it. Kicked it really hard or something. Yeah, he, but there was something that happened. Maybe that's when they cut the unicorn head off. Is that he burst through, or not the head of the horn? No, the because uh, the, the 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 horn was when winter started. Yeah, but there's something he was significant underwater. there. In any case, yeah, whatever I think whatever it was, yeah. he bursts out and then he comes across. You know, he cut. Yeah, sorry, he makes himself a fire and passes out in the snow because this guy's wearing like nothing. He's wearing enough to keep it PG. Uh, and he's come across by the elf, this little kid. Yeah. And obviously he's not a little kid. He's played by a little kid. And then two dwarfs wearing enough makeup that they're never going to get cold. And a fairy who's really actually just a light on a string that's badly covered at times. That's some poor film. Like, that's just, they didn't catch that in filmmaking. What are you going to do? In this day and age, that would be scrubbed out by computer in two yeah. minutes. And he is, and, and they realize there needs to be a champion because they go and they remember they go to the they, they go back to the site of where the unicorns lost his horn and by that point, the female has come back because it's the male who's had his horn hacked off. Right. And the females come back and, in a really neat scene, Tom Cruise Jack Tom Cruise's character, apologizes. Yeah. 
And that's cool. Like, he's so sorry. That's when they realize, you know, he's sort of, I guess he's sort of told by this unicorn, though obviously there's no words, that he, there has to be a champion pure of heart and of spirit and all that. And of course, that's going to be Jack. So they go off in search of armor and at some point, and they leave behind Brown Tom. For the longest time, I thought it was Rum Tom, the name of the... Oh, yeah. It's Brown, Brown Tom. Tom. Brown yeah. Tom. But they say it so fast. Brown Tom. Brown Tom. And believe it or not, despite the fact that I've seen this so many times, I always thought he did, when he gets shot in the head by the arrow, he says, they hit my brain pan. I honestly thought the broken stuff on his head was his skull. Uh, but it's no, not. It's his, it's it's his, his brandy booze. bottle. It's yeah. his brandy bottle. Yeah, it's, it's very wine that they, they had used to warm Whatever up. Whatever it was. Yeah. yeah, warm up Jack earlier. So he's left guarding, you know, Brown Tom is left guarding the unicorn. And Lily shows up. At which point, so do does Blix and the other and and the the pig and the, the the guy in armor and they well quote unquote kill brown tom they get him in the head with the arrow they grab lily she's a bonus and they grab the other unicorn because he will not or she will not leave her mate despite the fact that he's dead ish yeah dead you know it's fantasy so dead is uh, a relative Mostly term. Dead. yeah in the meantime tom or tom Jack goes off to get his armor. Of course, it's just sort of this simple golden chain mail, sort of generic, same with the sword. But then something interesting happens that sort of, it's sort of a Peter Pan sort of thing. The fairy reveals she's really not just a blinking light, she's a, she's a girl. And is that where she, re, is that where she reveals she loves him? Or does nope. that come up? Uh, sh or she, she re reveals herself to him and swears him to secrecy. Right, right. And then they head off to the tree where Lily already is. And it's an interesting because you're sort of now following two different stories. You're following Lily, who's a, a, uh, a prisoner in the tree, and you're following uh, Jack and his crew. And they try to cross the swamp, and they come across a creature which I swear to God belongs in, in some Muppet horror movie, like the Dark Crystal, this woman, yeah. this green woman. And remember, you said that there's, there's language from the Princess Bride that's worked its way into your family? Mm-hmm. Something she said worked its way into mine. Oh, indeed I do. When he says, you don't mean to eat me, madam. Oh, indeed I do. What a fine, fat boy you are, Jack. You don't really mean to eat me, do you, ma'am? Oh, indeed I do. <laughs> and she's scary. And That's she's super creepy, by it, the way. It is. It's totally, she is. And it's neat because she is creepy in a way that scares me which is she puts his, her face right up to his and he moves to the left and she dogs with him and he moves to the right and she's practically nose to nose with him and it's terrifying that she's so close. For whatever reason, that is what scares me. Going nose to nose with well, something that's scary. Uh, that's what actually freaked me out about the movie Pet Cemetery, when there's this vision of a girl named Zelda coming right at the camera and, and, the and, and you know, she's got this scary Stephen King dead whatever look going. She approaches the camera and I turned off the film and I've never come back to it. Wow. Because it freaked me out that much. So this woman is, despite the fact that it's so clearly a Muppet costume from hell. Yes. She's in the bog of eternal stench from Labyrinth. Pretty much, yeah. And it's almost like she got lost on her way to the set. And, ah, fuck, we'll use her, whatever. Yeah. But, she's, but because she's got her face in, in Jack's, it scares me. I mean, I'm not sitting here. I'm 42 years old. I'm not going to pee in my pants. But it's disturbing to me. 
And that's where Jack, we know he can't ever go back to being a boy of the forest because he kills. Yeah. He takes a life. Even though it's a foul life, it's her life, he hacks her freaking head off. Though not entirely because it seems to be hanging there. I, I caught that and I wonder if Wardrobe that's... malfunction. Very, very possibly, yeah. who knows? But yeah, it's... And it's just, you know, she sinks back into the bog and they manage to enter... Yeah, they, they, you know, they manage to enter the tree. The sword disappears. Does it? He never uses the sword again. He looks at it, it's all... It's got... Uh, goo. Yeah. And he drops it. Well, yeah, because now it's been right? fouled. So he loses the sword. Yeah. It's, it's no longer the shiny hero sword. Yeah, that's right. It's funny because that, that, that just dawns on me that's a lot like Clash of the Titans, of course, based on the story of Perseus, that he has to give up the shield after using it on Medusa because it's fouled by her blood. You know, he every, he's given all these tools by Zeus and he keeps losing them because once he's used them, they're fouled. They're no longer pure. He can't use them anymore. He, he loses his shield later, too. That's true, and I forget where he loses it. On the slide into the dungeon. Right. Yeah, I think that's more of a... He just loses. I don't think it's meant to... It goes to, that way, they go this way. Yeah, it's not yeah, meant to be. I, I think it's mostly he's being robbed of his protection yeah. against the darkness. Yeah. Because it's shiny, it, it catches piece light. Piece by piece, they, they take the light away. Yeah, except his, his armor, that never goes anywhere. shiny, yeah. Yeah, and at the same time, I mean, we could go you know, point for point. He winds up in a you know in a cage. This is where we discover that Blix's helmeted head asshole, who tried to hold on to the horn for himself until darkness showed up, took it from him, and then threw him into a pit. Well, actually, had a dead body wake up, grab him, the floor opens up, and he jumps in. And this is where he finds himself in the same cell block as Jack and the fairy and, and the elf and the two dwarves. But in the meantime, Lily has been left to wander in this tree, this palace, because she's just a girl. She can't do any harm. Again, this is fantasy. This is the 80s. She can't do any harm. She, this is not Black Widow from Marvel. She isn't doing triple flips and killing people. No. She's just a girl. And remember I mentioned, I, it's one of, my, one of my favorites. It's my favorite scene in the movie. It's one of my favorite scenes in cinema, it's often called the dance, the dance macabre, the, the dance of death. Because they, they're seducing her. You hear the whispers from Darkness's father in the fire. Woo her. Seduce her. Make her one of us. You hear that sort of whisper. Yeah. And even that, like you said, it's not a real voice. It's, I mean, obviously it's an actual actor, but it, it's made to be part of the music. Yeah. And at first, remember, she sees that table full of shiny baubles, shiny like overly gaudy jewelry. And it's sort of like, this is what a pretty young princess should like, the pretty shiny stuff. Yeah. And in the background, you see sort of this twisted evil version of a cherub. Did you catch it? The yeah. fat thing. And it looks at first like it's a, like a, a statue. Yeah. Until if, it moves. Until it moves. But you're paying attention to her as she approaches the, the, the shiny jewelry table. Yeah. If you're not looking, you may not catch the cherub oh, yeah. move. He's like, oh yeah, she's going, she's, she's going for it. Yeah, yeah. She, well, I think he's meant to be Darkness's eyes there. He's the spy. Yeah. And then we hear this music start. And really, and of course, even what attracts her there is the sound, is the whale sound. Meant to sound somewhat like the 
unicorns, but it's a deeper... Not quite, yeah. Yeah, not quite, because it's darkness. They can't do it properly, because darkness can never quite replicate the light, just like someone who's truly nice can't ever be truly evil. We learned that from the, you know, the guy with the helmet. In the end, he comes back to the side of light. There's only so long he can pretend. Yeah. So they pretend the 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 whale sound, which really, the unicorn sound, that attracts her to the baubles. And then once the baubles come, she hears something in the background and she looks. And it's a dress with a black nothing inside, dancing with her. And it seduces her by getting her to sort of forget who she is. And she starts to just, in a carefree, girlish way, starts to dance with this dress. And the music, like I've heard the music with the score, with the Jerry Goldsmith score from Europe, and it doesn't work. Because this is all about the music. And to me, remember I was saying beforehand, it's like music box music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. It's, it's it's very childlike and joyous until suddenly she's not dancing with the dress. She's in the dress yeah. with the black lipstick and her hair covered with a black, I don't know what you call that. And yeah, it's so over the top. It's like, you know, Bride of, you know, Bride of Shazam from Flash Gordon episode five. Like it's that kind of over the top darkness with the black makeup and the, the black, you know, nail polish and black dress with the overextended black collar it's very extreme and it's almost silly but it works here i'm not sure why but she comes out of it looking evil and then darkness shows up and we and comes through because she stops in a mirror to admire how pretty she is and it's this interesting symbolism that he comes through the mirror at her yeah first the horns and the cloven hooves and then at first you notice we only see him in reflection as she faints Hello, this is Farron, and this is a quick addendum to our episode. While editing this particular moment of our discussion, it clicked in my head that the symbolism of how darkness reveals himself has an interesting parallel with Star Wars, both The Empire Strikes Back and The Last Jedi, which premiered two days ago. In Legend, darkness only reveals himself to Lily once she's been seduced by the black dress. She puts on the dress, and now looking evil, having been seduced by evil, turns to a mirror to admire herself. At that moment, darkness emerges from the mirror. It's as if looking into the mirror and seeing herself evil in black attire is what it took to summon darkness. In The Last Jedi, Rey eventually gives in to temptation and descends into the dark, foul hole where the dark side resides. What she sees is a mirror, a reflection of herself many times over, drawing back into infinity. The dark side, we realize, is really nothing more than you. Of course, Master Yoda knew this in The Empire Strikes Back when he sent Luke into the cave on Dagobah. I feel cold. Death. That place is strong with the dark side of the Force. A domain of evil it is. 
then you must go. What's in there? Only what you take with you. And of course, what does Luke find? He finds Darth Vader, whom he strikes down, only to reveal himself behind the mask. The dark side was always about what was inside of Luke. I, th I think we see him in reflection through like a plate or something. Yeah. And then we see him in all of his glory for the first time, devil red, yeah. with that Tim Curry grin, of course, accentuated by this incredible makeup and these fangs that aren't so much there to hurt you as to intimidate the shit out of you. And it's just, I don't know, like when you saw that scene, because I mean, clearly you don't remember from the first time, what, what was going through your head when you saw it? Because for me, I'm just wrapped up in it. Yeah, pretty much. Um, you're right about the music. Like, I, I couldn't imagine it with different music because that's kind of what tied everything together. Yeah. You can find that on YouTube because it's a very popular scene, so it's, it's clipped a few times, so you can I'll, probably I'll find it. I'll have to check it. out, yeah. out with the other music. But yeah, he, he comes out of the mirror, and there he is, and it's Tim Curry as yeah, this Ten giant, feet tall, and yeah. <laughs> I'm like, holy smokes. That's really scary. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. I like you, my gifts. Does the gun not please you? And it's neat because she very, like, she, at first she's like, no, I, I won't join you. I'm not interested. He says, we well, know that's your bridal ground. She says, never. But within a few minutes, she realizes there's no way out except through. So she, she can't escape. She's got to go through darkness to do it. So she she pisses him off till he starts trashing the table where they're supposed to eat. And, you know, he offers her wine, which I'm pretty sure is blood. Either that or some really nasty blackberry wine. I'm not sure what it was. I don't drink wine, so I couldn't tell you. But I'm pretty sure I wouldn't drink wine that filled itself in a cup. Just saying. Yeah, offered, offered to me by a guy named Darkness. With super weird. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I would pass on that. Yeah, when a guy with cloven hooves offers you wine, say no. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good... <laughs> Good night to be the designated driver. <laughs> do, you want a, do you want a pomegranate? <laughs> yeah, not so much, yeah. But it's, uh, you know, she starts messing with him, and when he flips out, she laughs. Sis, I value your thoughts. Share them with me. Sit. Sit. Nothing more than that. And talk with me. Eat. I do nothing for your pleasure. No! 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 <laughs> and as if she's punching, pushing his buttons, and she says, "Okay, I'll stay with you as long as I get to kill the unicorn." And he just—he has this look of ecstasy on his face. Yes. I got her. Awesome. In the meantime. You know, Tom Cruise and, and, and that crew, they've broken out of the prison by him giving up. He's Now he's le even less innocent than he was before because he's broken a promise. He broke the promise to the fairy, Una. Yeah. He's revealed she's a girl. And because she needs to fly out of the, the cage and get the keys, and she does that, and she takes a shot. At first she says, kiss me. And he gives her a peck on the cheek, and, and he says, no, no, really kiss me. And she makes herself look like Lily. No, I, I can't. No, this is just more fairy glamour. 
and she flies off crying, but does come back with a key. And then they fight the cooks, <laughs> you know, the pig man, and I think they're both pig men. I don't yeah, know. They've I got like so. sort of that pig snout and the big. Their, their voices were all snorty when they yeah. when they got disordered. You know, yeah. but of course in the background one of them is still whacking on that poor guy lying on the meat <laughs> table. And I think that's meant to be sort of like your eternal torment is to lie on a meat table and have a guy hack at you with a cleaver. Like they refer to heaven. You know, because remember the very beginning when when darkness tells Blix, I need that unicorn. So what's it look like? What do they look like, Lord? Let this serve to remind you. The creature is crowned with a single spiral, reaching like an antenna straight to heaven. Yeah. So I wonder if this tree is meant to be hell, or at least the first step on the trip there. Right. Because it looks like a lot of people have gone there to see their aunt. You know, you're tormented. Then we send you on to Daddy, who Darkness talks to in the you know fireplace. Right. <laughs> but they knock off the uh, they knock off the cooks, and they wander around. And at one point, they get split up, and they come across some scary beasts that sound like leopards, which I never really got. Yeah, and they're, and, they're, and you know, like the elf is swinging, is sort of clawing back, but eventually they just lock them behind a door, like. I wonder why they bother with that scene at all. Like, there's no purpose to it. There's no fight. Nothing is either gained nor lost. It's just they went into a room, they encountered them, they went into the next room. So what? Yeah. You know. And eventually come up with this very simple plan. How do you, how do you kill the darkness? With the light. With the light. The sun sets forever. There shall never be another dawn. No! <laughs> Lady, I require the solace of the shadows and the dark of the night. Sunshine is my destroyer. As long as the sun still shines, we can destroy him. And it turns out the only thing that's bright and shiny in that goddamn place is the the plates in the kitchen. The serving trays. The yeah. serving trays. And so they, they start setting the trays all the way up from the, the chimney to the outside world. And, you know, they'll, they'll reflect because that's how light <clears throat> apparently works. And, you know, like a laser. And they set them up. And they wound up aiming them right at where the, the, the last unicorn has been, has been set up. So that because they know darkness will eventually show up to, to kill the thing. And we get to see this really funny ritual with, you know, the standard guys in robes. Who you know the, the high priestesses? That I, I always found that kind of funny. But yeah. it's like, quickly find me some monk's robes. What color? I don't care. You know, like it, it looks like these guys were thrown together in five minutes. Yeah. When, like you said er, earlier, um, every time the good guys had a minor victory, the light came up. The, yeah. The darkness. That's right. Seeped back a touch. Because the yeah in the um, kitchen it's this I mean it's it's Hell's Kitchen I can say that and if you've never seen the film you know exactly what you're talking you know exactly what I'm talking about this is Hell's Kitchen. Though if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the movie, what the hell? Pause this and go see the movie. Um, though I'll spoil it for you. Light wins in the end. I know, shocking. Though not really. Only sort of, right? Because darkness is alive in the end. So yeah, they, when they defeat the two bosses in the kitchen, they defeat the two uh, cooks, it goes from this dark red to this pure white. It's still dark and gringy and needs a good, you know, good episode of Mr. You know, good session with Mr. Clean and a mop, but it's brighter. You're right. Every time they win, the light follows them even into this darkest of dark places. 
And of course, the darkest of dark places is this, I don't know where it is they got this sucker uh, tied up, this unicorn. Because off in the background, there's like the distant cosmos. I'm not sure how that is, but maybe that's where he sucked into in the end. And then, you know, all these guys in robes hold, trying to hold on to this chained unicorn. <laughs> and in walks darkness with Lily. And remember her thing is, I'll be with you forever if you let me kill the unicorn. So he hands her the other unicorn horn. Because what could be more horrible than killing the last unicorn? With her. With, with the mate's horn. And like the opposite of creation, there's a little, I'm not sure if that was intended, you know, that the male has lost his horn uh -huh. <laughs> and she will be slain with it uh, other than what you would normally, you know, give, you know, to give life and all that sort of yeah. stuff. I'm not sure whether, but maybe that's me looking a little, I, dig, I, digging a little deep. I don't it know. It could be though, because when the goblin tries to get out of killing the second unicorn, he says, well, it's only the female. She has no power. And he says only the power of creation. Yeah, so it's possible. So you might be right. Yeah, so a little bit of phallic symmetry, uh, imagery in there. Not all phallic imagery is sexual in nature, that's no. for sure. If you ever see the movie Gladiator, another Ridley Scott, you see the uh, the, the Colosseum. There are these big pillars mm -hmm. in the arena. They're phalluses. It's very clear the way they're shaped. They're erect phalluses, but not in a sexual manner. It's about virility yeah. and maleness. And so maybe, you know, so again, maybe this is just symbolism, that sort of symbolism. Like Ridley Scott is big on relig religious symbolism. He's very religious. I'm not sure whether he's a devout Catholic or what, but his religiosity, he can't help but put it in his films. You certainly see it in those last two Aliens films, Alien Covenant and yeah. what's that other stinker, Prometheus. Oh. He, yeah, don't, get me, don't even get me started on yeah, those no. ones. Um, you know, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, probably the best podcast there is. They reviewed Prometheus, and that's a wonder to behold, listening to you know, five science-minded people, one of whom is a, you know, a neurologist at Yale, just ragging on this film. It's brilliant. <laughs> but you know, one thing they talk about is his religiosity, and that seems to pop up here a lot. Like the, even though this is not a Christian fantasy, the use of heaven is. Heaven mm -hmm. is a Christian concept. Oh yeah. You know, the Romans have Elysium, that's fine, and the you know, others have different underworlds for the bad and good places for the good. But heaven is a very Christian well, Judeo Christian Muslim yeah. concept. Abrahamic. You know, right. so I'm not sure how much of that in there, but so she takes the horn and of course instead of killing the unicorn He's like she said, she realize, I said she realizes she has to go through darkness. She can't escape him. So she takes it right to the edge where she's about to kill the unicorn. And you've got Jack there with his bow and arrow and the, the elf as well. And they're going to kill her before she can do it. But Tom, sorry, Tom, Jack trusts Lily. Finally. And he's right to. Because she, with that, even though she's a weak little girl, she's got a unicorn horn, which is a powerful thing we've seen. It can... It can start fires. It can destroy things. It is power. Uses it to build, break that chain, and there's all hell breaks loose, and she gets like, whacked in the head by by uh, by darkness. Yeah. And though I notice he missed her. Oh yeah. <laughs> he wings. He wings. By a wings. lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, imagine Tim Curry in all that makeup, heavy, actually batting Mia Sari. He would not. Yeah. He would have hurt her. He would. He could have injured her. Yeah. Uh, and that's fine. It works well. And Jack and him get in a fight, and it's a cool fight, because he because Jack has no hope in hell against this ten foot or eight foot tall monster with a sword. Yeah. And there's one really cool part where he sort of has Jack up against a wall, and he goes face to face with them too. My least favorite thing, and he but he's got the horns boxing in Jack, 
to his left and his right, like the horns go to Jack's left and right and sort of pin him there. Mm-hmm. That's a cool scene. Yeah, you know? that was good. And then, how is it in the end he get he gets pushed? I think oh yeah, he stabs him with a horn. Yeah. And Jack finds the horn, sees the horn falling in the acid or slime. The, or yeah, and he grabs it, and he's fine because he's grabbing. You know, he's pu- he's pure enough to grab a pure object that he's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he stabs him, I think, in the stomach or something like that. And then for the second movie we've seen today, a vortex opens up to to pull away evil. But at the last minute, he loses the horn. I forget how that happens. But he makes a great speech. You know, you cannot kill me. You think you have won. What is light without dark? And of course, he's right. Yeah. Because in the very, very last scene is him laughing. Oh, yeah. He's just, he's lost his foothold on he's sucked into the void for a little while. For a while, yeah. But he's, he's lost his foothold, but he's coming back. Because how else do you do this? Yeah. But it ends with him being defeated and then putting the horn back on the, the fallen unicorn who then wakes up and, you know, Tom, uh, Tom, Jack goes and gets the, uh, the ring and they wander off into the sunset. And, and this is interesting because it's, this is back to sort of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. They head off into the sunset, him and Lily. And behind them are the unicorn and the elves and all of that. He can't go back to them. No. Because what little innocence he had left, she's about to take care of. Because presumably they're going to get married and live happily ever after. Which means he will now no longer be a virgin. And you know, we talked earlier with, uh, with the first film, why is it that virgin always has to be a girl? Well, here's an example where purity and virginity work for both of them. Yeah. Because he slowly sacrifices his purity by taking the head off the green thing in the swamp by killing the two he does kill the two cooks mm-hmm. by dealing with darkness doing these terrible things by by giving up a confidence by, by revealing una's secret even though because he's broken a promise he said he would not do right and he's so he's losing a little bit of innocence along the way and this and the last little bit of innocence he will give up is his virginity he'll give that to lily presumably she will you know same thing One would imagine. she's she is as pure as he is so he can't go back which is, I, I find that interesting. Like I said it's it's sort of this paradise lost, paradise regained. Mm-hmm. It's which is I think Milton. You know, it, there's a lot of classic mythology yeah. pouring into this, and I think that's because I think that's the British roots of this movie. Yeah, I can't see Hollywood having done this with as much symbolism. No, because they produced, you know, Red Sonia and Conan the Destroyer and. Ugh and dragon slayer and like these are bad sword and i don't even call them fantasy films i call them sword and sorcery films because that's what they called them at the time yeah those are the ones and and and, and a sword and sorcery film our our, our readers or readers if you're reading this what the hell um our listeners should recognize fantasy and sword and sorcery not the same thing sword and sorcery is just a shitty film with a fantasy veneer yeah you want to see a good fantasy film watch this Certainly watch Lord of the Rings. I can't think of many others, though. Thor, I would argue, is fantasy. Yeah. Thor, like the, yeah. the Marvel movie. There are very few real fantasy films. Most of them wind up being, again, sword and sorcery. Get a bunch of guys in sandals and leather thongs, give them a sword, and let them go at it. See what happens, yeah. And, you know, Ridley Scott, who I believe is an artist, even when I hate his movies, they're all beautiful films. They're all beautifully made. He knows... He knows mythology. He knows that. He knows religiosity. And I think that's what this is. Yeah. So, I guess you can't... I mean, does it hold up for you? I mean, I mean, do, do the scenes from your fragmented memory 
Do they hold up? Uh, having seen it complete, yeah. yes, it's much better than seeing it in chunks as you're Fair enough, flipping yeah. past it on a Sunday yeah. afternoon. Okay. Um, I did sort of expect to see Puck jump out and give his little speech at the end. Yeah, well, I think the elf... Yeah, is it, he's very puckish. Like for for our listeners, it's a midnight, a Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, it's he's intended to be that character. He's the all-knowing, not human elf who's there to make sure who's there to orient the audience. He's the narrator. Yeah, yeah, he is because Jack has no idea what the hell is going on until this. I don't even know the kid's name. The elf, whatever. Gump. Gump. Yeah, Gump. Um, I wonder why they just go ahead and call him Puck. And be done with it. Because he's Puck. Yeah, he's there. He Once he arrives, we know exactly what the problem is. He translates the unicorn's message for Jack. Did he? Yes. When Jack comes back after, with his, after, with after his apolog- message, after apologizing. after apologizing, he comes back with the message, and he tells, he tells the elf and the yeah. dwarves yeah. what the unicorn's message was. Pucker, yeah. Gumper. Gump. Gump. Realizes it has to be, it's says, you. It's you. Right, because Jack doesn't clue in it. Right. You're right. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. So he's yeah, he's the interpreter for us, isn't he? Because he, he understands. Um, because Jack, who is a you know, a boy of the forest, can hear the words of the unicorn. He's that in it. He's innocent enough still. That, because he hasn't done anything. He, everything he's done is done for love. Yeah. But he still but just because he can hear the words of the unicorn doesn't mean he understands them. Mm-hmm. You have to go to something that's more magical and that's right. go. Uh, and the dwarves don't get tarnished. That's true. I mean, Only well, Jack- the one lies a little bit. He exaggerates. Yeah. You know, oh, there was 50 of them. There was 600 of them. I fought them off. They got me in the end. I doubt it. Yeah. No, that's no, comical and yeah, that's, silly. Yeah, that's and- funny, but Jack does the dirty work. Yeah, that's true. Well, Una, I mean, she turns out, she's interesting. She's like, she could have gone either way. Like there was a point where I, even now, of course, I know the film, but you sort of wonder, is she going to abandon them in those cells? Because she's been spurned. Mm-hmm. The, you ever see the movie Hook? Yeah. Where... To me, the one beautiful scene, the scene that actually can put me to tears, is when Tinkerbell becomes full-sized. Yeah. Because she wants Peter. Mm-hmm. It's it's a heartbreaking scene. It's one of the few scenes that's actually made me cry in a theater. And this is sort of an angrier version of that. The tiny fairy who wants more. Yeah. And she's deceptive. No, she's not a fairy. She's a sprite. Yeah. She's she's deceptive and she's angry about it and she's got that she's got the kind of like she's got these weird they have these weird contacts with these yeah. like super dilated pupils and it makes her look not evil just angry. Yeah, she's she's like you know like a fly gets in your face and he's like angry. She's almost like that. Like she's she's not annoying. She's like see me, notice me. I'm in your face and when she becomes bigger, her that little bit of anger becomes bigger with her. She wants something big. She wants a boy. Yeah. Just like Tinkerbell wanted Peter, Una wants Jack. And she's willing to cheat and lie to get it. Yeah, the fairy she's glamour. a trickster. She's a trickster, yeah. She's willing to get that. Though, clearly she's good. Yeah, she's, well, she's light. She's made of light. Yeah, she's just got a little bit of darkness in her. Just, just a little, yeah. You know, or maybe it's not so much darkness in the evil sense. It's like, you know, fairy folk in them, they're always presented as they're not quite pure, good, or good or bad. There's something else they're, entirely. They're mischievous. They're mischievous. Yeah, they come out on the side of light, but there is that inhuman something that's meant to keep humans at a distance. Mm-hmm. You can see that in Gawain and the Green Knight, which is a poem from the 14th century, where uh, the Green Knight offers this terrifying dare to Gawain, you know, and it's about cutting off heads. It's from an old, believe it or not, an old Welsh mythological tradition melded with sort of the Norman slash Saxon Arthurian legends where 
he offers him something terrifying. You know, I'll give you one swing at my head, and when I, and when you're done, if I'm able, I get to cut your head off. And of course, he puts his head back on his shoulders, and he says, "A year from now, I'll see you. I'm going to cut your head off." But it's really all just a test. Yeah. He really does mean well for Sir Gawain, and this is sort of like that. It's sort of, it may seem that these fairy folk are being bad, but they're not. They're just different. Good is different for them than it is for humans. Yeah, Maybe it's because we're Canadians, we're all so polite, but she's not polite. It's an alternate morality. Yes, but it's still good. It's still good. Una is still good, even if she's screwing with you, screwing with your head to get what she wants. In the end, she will do what you need. And I like that. You know, it's a multicultural, a mythological multiculturalism, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's clear, I really enjoy this film. As much as Roger Ebert, who I, I desperately respect, he didn't like it. He says it doesn't work. I respectfully disagree. The high concept films, the idea was it's all concept, no plot, which I would argue is what the original Star Wars was, episode four, for um, those of you who are younger. That's high concept. It's very little plot. It's all what you see and what happens. That works. Oh, works so-so. This also works pretty well. So I think it holds up as long as you know what you're getting into. Right. Lord of the Rings, this ain't. No. But it's quite good. If I were to show a fantasy film to a writing class, this is probably what I would choose. Right. Just because it's all concept. And it's just enough of a story that taps into enough of, you know, a mythological base, European and Middle Eastern and, you know, and I hate the term, but Oriental, meaning essentially everything east of the, the, the Red Sea. Um, it taps into all of those, all, I mean, including, like I said, Gilgamesh and, you know, the, the epic of Gilgamesh. That's Jack, yeah. Enkidu, his friend. Uh, Enkidu. Uh, so, yeah, so I think it holds up really well. So out of five stars, what would you give it, do you think? I want to watch it again. <laughs> uh, just to get to get more out of it, so... It is a film you have to watch a yeah, few times, isn't I'd, it? Yeah, I'd want to watch it again. So you're sort mm -hmm. of you know, halting, you're not quite sure yet, you're eyeballing it, what do you figure you're going to give it? Right now, three and a half. But I'd, it would probably go up if I, if I see it again and think about it more. Yeah. I think I have to give it about a four and a half. Maybe four and three quarters. I don't care that I could see the fishing wire holding up Una, which at one point they accidentally focus on her a little much and you realize it's four tiny little bulbs yeah um like literally taped together or wired together like it's pretty clear that's what she is um i didn't mind that even though it was pretty obvious again it was on this, like this was it was sort of like she was on the end of a she was the end of some wire on the end of a, a stick that some guy was bouncing up and down i can forgive that because what else are you going to do these days it would all be yeah, CG and she'd, she'd be a computer dog. whip around your head and be and she, you know, she'd make all sorts of shapes in the air. I can live with that. I don't have a problem with that. I, I'm not the sort of person who thinks the special effects have to hold up. Like I think the remastered original Star Trek series is a travesty because if you're watching it for good special effects, yeah. you're missing the point of Star Trek. Worse. Star Wars. No, no, Star Trek. Really? Yeah, they redid the original series they did all the special effects over on a, on a selected episodes for some sort of blu-ray release no that's awful because again if you're if you watch star wars for the special effects of course you are but i still like them the way they originally were because they were damn good um but star trek it's not about the effects no not at all and here it the things that the effects that do hold up the music the we didn't even talk about the set inside the inside the tree wow that was gorgeous those those bloated pillars yeah um, it's gorgeous. Or the scene where the unicorn falls under the 
the the blossom tree with the, the light in the background and sort of this island of blossoms around like the art direction in this film is amazing and darkness is amazing like i have so i so i can look i can totally look past poor little una on a string yeah for sure and say you know the only thing i sort of take it away for is the pig man looks stupid and so does the fairy guy in the armor it it's this goofy armor that comes out of it looks like it comes out of uh the Goblin King's uh, army in Labyrinth. Yeah. David Bowie should be commanding this guy, not Darkness. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I get it. He's a fairy guy. He's good, and he doesn't know how to do evil armor, so he just puts some piece of shit on his head. But it looks silly. And also, the the, the madam, the green woman in the swamp, she looks like she wandered in out of another film. Yeah. She doesn't work. The face works. The body didn't. No, she she wasn't right. I mean, I like the fact that she's she's warped. Her body is warped because she's, she is evil, and evil warps. They should have put more clothes on her. No, I'm not being a Puritan, but the makeup, it was not up to the task. So yeah. I take off half. So I'll give it four and a half. I take off half for doing the best they could, but what are you going to do? So, so there it is. We've done three in a row. Hopefully the next time we'll actually have Raimi. So there'll be all of us in one room. Wouldn't that be something different? And there it is until next time.